Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to thank you for joining with us as we study God's Word. One of my favorite topics is victory for Christ's church and for local congregations. How can we be victorious in Christ's service? I believe we can be victorious by doing things God's way, by doing things the way those early Christians did, as the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in His Word. One of the great examples of success is the Jerusalem congregation. If you've not listened to the lesson to boldly go where we've never gone before, go to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com and listen to that lesson first. It gives an overview of the eight keys for Jerusalem's success. In the lesson that follows here, we'll begin our in-depth examination of Jerusalem's success by noting how they were devoted to worship. Open your Bible and see how each of us can improve our devotion to God and to worship. We've all seen churches that began small in a storefront or perhaps in somebody's house. And just for a period of years, they just grow like gangbusters, baptizing people right and left, folks moving in and becoming a part of the congregation. But it seems that every congregation we've ever seen do that eventually will at some point hit a ceiling. They'll stop. They'll plateau. And it just seems like they're constantly hitting below that ceiling. If they, if they drop down too far, then they'll, they'll head back up and, and then they'll stop. Why does that happen? I think Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, gives us some explanation about what causes this. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 14, it says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I want you to notice this part of the verse here where it points out that the congregation grows by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. This tells us some practical things about the way a congregation, any congregation, is going to grow. And just the logistics of what will happen. Basically, the point that Paul demonstrates to us is that a congregation is essentially as strong as the individual strengths of the members within it. And based upon the strengths that the members within a particular congregation have, that congregation will be able to grow to the point that those strengths can handle it. For instance, you might have a congregation that has about 100 members. And they work just fine. They get up to that point. They baptize and they grow until they get up to about 100 members. But based upon the strengths of the individual members within the congregation, there's just only so much work they can do. There's only so much... Uh, evangelizing they can do. There's only so much encouraging they can do. There's only so much of all that that they can accomplish. And at that level, they get maxed out. And the ones who are working and, and striving to get all this done, they can only do so much. And once their ability to work is maxed out, that's going to stop. The, the growth is going to stop. They may baptize some people, but because that puts more pressure on them than they have the strength to handle... They're, they're going to have some folks that fall away. They may have some new families move in. But then because that puts more pressure on them than their strength can handle, they end up having some that slip away. 
Maybe going to another congregation for one reason or another. And so that particular congregation will get to about 100 and they'll probably just stay there. We take Franklin. Obviously right now, I think we can, I think our strengths will offer more. I think that's why we've been growing rapidly throughout the past year. But obviously we can handle them between 135, 150. That's about where we are. But one of the things that we must constantly care about is not to allow any of these issues or obstacles to become a ceiling for us. I'm not saying that any congregation has to stop at any level. I'm just saying that's the way it just typically happens. But we don't have to let that happen. We don't have to let that happen here. We need to be a congregation that is constantly focused on growth, that's constantly focused on bringing people in and growing them so that we can grow together and be strengthened as a congregation, be strengthened as individual Christians, allowing for more and more strength to be supplied, which allows for more and more room for growth. But this passage implies something then. If this congregation in general is going to be able to increase its ability and its strength to handle more and more Christians, how's it going to do it? It's going to do it by you and I, as individuals, strengthening ourselves. We as individuals have to grow if the congregation is going to grow. Because this church can only grow to the extent that each individual part does its work. And so if each individual part becomes stronger, guess, what's happened? guess what happens to the whole? It gets stronger. That's what we want to focus on. What are the things that we need to work on then? You may remember just a few weeks ago, we took a look at the Jerusalem congregation. And we talked about several key things that they did that helped them be a victorious congregation that helped them continue to grow. And it just seemed that no matter what happened to them, they just continued growing and growing and growing until the biblical record was finished. And I think it would be good for us as individuals to take a look at these keys and and to use this as a model for us about where we need to grow. Today, I'd like for us to take a look at this very first key to success. Continual devotion to worship. If the Franklin congregation is going to grow is going to be strengthened in general, then we as individual members have got to increase our devotion to worship. And I'd like for us just simply to look at the Jerusalem Christians and how they were devoted and why. We're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47, because in these verses I believe we see essentially the summary of their devotion to worship. Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 43. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 43, the Scripture reads, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, fear. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The very first thing I'd like for you to notice is that the Jerusalem Christians were devoted to worship because the Jerusalem Christians feared God. 
There in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43 it says, in the New American Standard, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. I believe the New King James and the King James both used the term fear. I believe we need to recognize that this term here is not just a sense of awe. I know it's not spiritually correct today to talk about fearing God. But this term, as it's used four other times in the book of Acts, does not refer to, oh, we're just so in awe of God and how awesome He is. For instance, look in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great reverence came over the all who heard it. Do you think, is that what your text says there? Do you think that's what Luke was letting us know, that, that reverence came because of this? It's fear. I mean, what would happen if somebody in our assembly, because they were doing something wrong, dropped down dead immediately? Would you just revere God? Or would you be afraid? There, Acts chapter 5, verse 9, Peter said to her, the wife has come in. He says, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. They feared God. And because they feared God, they were devoted to worship. I want you to think about this in two ways. First of all, just, just fear. They feared God. They had seen God's powerful hand and they, could, they saw what it could do. If you stepped out of line, you could get zapped. Who's going to be next? They were afraid. What if it's me? I want to live in such a way that it's not me, right? And so they were devoted to worship. But let's think about another aspect of that fear. Have you ever been in a situation... You're driving your car, kind of not paying attention. You've got the music going. You're just kind of bebopping along. And you, you just pull out on the road, and all of a sudden you hear this horn honking, and you hear tires squealing, and this car swerves around you and just barely misses you. Now, the car's gone. You're safe. You've looked in the mirror. Everything's okay. But how do you feel in that moment? I'm not the only one who's done that, am I? I mean, we've all been there, right? And what, what are you? You're absolutely scared. I mean, even though you're safe right now, you're scared. You fear because you're thinking about that close call. The heart is pounding. Your palms are getting a little bit sweaty. Your mouth is getting a little bit dry. And now, for the rest of the trip, what do you do? Turn the radio down. Put the cell phone aside. Uh, and, and drive carefully, right? Why? Because the memory, the fear of that close call is still just right there on your mind. I think that's what these Jerusalem Christians had. They had the fear of that close call. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter had preached that sermon, and he had demonstrated to them that they had crucified the Messiah in verse 36 of Acts 2, he said, Let all the house of Israel know for certain, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
And the next verse, when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart, Acts 2.37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Just think for a moment how that question would be asked. That wasn't a question of logic. That wasn't a question of, oh, we've messed up, what should we do about it? That's a question of despair. Can you imagine these people, if you had finally been convicted that you nailed the Messiah whom you've been waiting for to a cross, what would you expect to be able to do? Absolutely nothing. It's over. The hope of Israel, we killed him. But then Peter said, no, there is something you can do. You can repent. Be baptized for the remission of your sins and you'll receive this gift of salvation. And I believe that that close call, that that feeling, that sense of understanding how close they were to eternal damnation rested heavily on their heart. And because of that, they were devoted to God in worship. They feared Him. We need that fear. We need to remember the close call that we have gone through. God didn't have to wait for you to hear the Gospel. But He did. And you were that close to eternal destruction. Fear God. Be devoted to Him in worship. Praising Him daily. Acts 2.47 demonstrates that they praise God daily. And God was daily adding to their number. They feared God. But the second aspect of their character that caused them to be devoted to worship is the fact that they were devoted to serving one another. If you take a look there in verses 44 and 45 of Acts chapter 2, all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. While the Christians, while they had become Christians in order to be saved from their own sins, they were saved in the love of the brethren, as Peter would say later when he wrote one of his letters. And they were servants. And they were devoted to serving. And they recognized that while we gather together and we worship God in order to honor and in order to praise Him, we are serving one another when we worship and praise God. And because they were devoted to serving their brethren, they were devoted to worshiping God. Think about Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, the Hebrew writer says, in Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The mere fact that we gather together to worship God and honor Him is a service that helps stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. When we come here, we're honoring and worshiping God, but we're also encouraging those who are with us. What a great service that is. And what we do while we're here honors and serves. When we sing... You know what Paul said in Ephesians and Colossians? We are speaking and edifying one another. And what a great form of worship singing is. Because there and at that time in our worship, we are all equally involved in worshiping God and in serving one another as we speak to one another and edify one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, praising God with the fruit of our lips. As we participate in the Lord's Supper, 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes. What a service that is. As we strengthen our brethren and let them know that they don't have to fear the atheists, they don't have to fear the pagans, we don't have to fear those pseudo-intellectuals that, that say we don't know what we're talking about. Jesus did die. Jesus was resurrected and Jesus is coming back. And we're saying that to one another as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Another time during our worship assembly when we are equally participating in the worship and equally serving one another. When we pray. What a great service that is. As we call upon the most powerful one in all the universe, interceding on behalf of our brethren, calling Him to their behalf. Just as Paul asked in Ephesians chapter 6.18, he said, pray on my behalf. When we're calling on God on their behalf, is there any greater service we could offer than intercede on their behalf by going to God in prayer? Giving. Certainly we recognize that as service because as we give and the church is provided with funds to accomplish the work of the Lord, those funds are used to to help saints that are in need, to help our brethren that are here that, that face difficulties, to help our brethren in spreading the gospel pays for facilities like these, for materials and literature that we use. It provides the the teaching that's offered to serve and help others grow. Certainly we recognize that as service and teaching. Whether you're up here behind the lectern or in a Bible class, the teaching and the studying of God's Word, what a service that is to help others grow in Christ by getting into God's Word and knowing Him and learning how to serve Him. That's service. And you realize that even right now, though I'm the one that's up here standing behind this lectern, I'm the one who has written out this lesson and I'm the one that's presenting it, do you realize that your attentiveness, your going through the Bible and looking, does far more to encourage those who are around you and teach them and demonstrate devotion to God than what I'm doing up here? Even now, though I'm the one that's talking, We're all teaching as we demonstrate our devotion to worship to those who are around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 demonstrates that our worship not only serves our brethren, but it will serve those who come into the assembly that are not Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 24, Paul said, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters... He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. When unbelievers come into our assembly, if they see us worshiping as though God is really with us, and they can tell from our worship that God is present because of our attention, our devotion, our expression, our involvement in what's going on, do you realize that your involvement in worship has far more impact on any non-Christian guest that comes into this assembly than anything I could possibly say up here? It really does. Non-Christians that come into our assembly are more impacted by the way the people sitting around them behave during the worship than by the guy up here that's presenting the lesson. And that's service. And when we are devoted to serving as these Jerusalem Christians were devoted to serving, then we'll be devoted to worship. Because we'll realize we're not only serving God, but we're serving our brethren. And we're serving those who come in to our sin. So we move on in Acts chapter 2. We find out that these brethren were devoted to worship because of their gladness. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, they Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness. 
All of these things that were happening are modified here with this gladness. They were doing all of this with gladness. They were taking their meals together, spending time with one another with gladness. They were worshiping with gladness. Now, can you just think for a moment? What did these people have to be glad about? There was a whole bunch of them that were thousands of miles from home. They didn't have any place to live. They they were relying on other people to feed them. What did they have to be glad about? They were under one of the most oppressive governments that the world has ever known as far as spiritual issues. All of these Christians were Jews that were considered a slave nation to the Roman Empire. What did they have to be glad about? Remember Acts chapter 8, verse 39, the Ethiopian eunuch. He and Philip went down into the water. Philip baptized him. And in Acts 8, 39, it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Why did he go on his way rejoicing? Because he was forgiven. The sins were gone. That close brush with eternal damnation had been avoided. And now they're glad. They're rejoicing. They're excited. They're happy. What else would they do but come and praise and honor and worship the One who had snatched them out of the fires of hell? and granted them the hope of heaven through the blood of His Son. Keeping in mind specifically with these Christians in Jerusalem, these these had been Jews brought up under the law. Do you remember what Peter said about the law in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10? Acts chapter 15 and verse 10, he said, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter said, we we know about the law. That was a yoke that we weren't able to bear. Without getting into all the deep theological issues about the law and and what it could accomplish and what it couldn't accomplish, the fact is the Jews recognize there are just some major problems. We're being pushed and pushed and pushed, but it's still not really accomplishing what we want. And finally, Jesus had come. He had died. And through His blood, it accomplished what we needed. 1 John chapter 1. beginning at verse 8. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Keep reading into chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus was the propitiation. He died and appeased that anger of God, that wrath against our sins. And we have died with Him in baptism, and we've been nailed to that cross with Him, and our body of sins has been done away. I'll tell you what, in Jerusalem... I bet it was years and years before they had to have lessons on forsaking the assembly. Because these Christians, it wasn't an issue of how many times I have to assemble with the saints, which services do I have to go to. It was an issue of, look at what God has done for me. Are the saints assembling? I'm there. What else can I do but gather and worship and praise this God who has saved me? Watch football? 
I'm sorry, I had to throw that in because today's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Yeah? That just kind of accidentally happened. I didn't plan it that way. But what else could I do? But worship, honor, and praise God. If you look back in Acts chapter 2, not only does it mention the gladness there in verse 46, but it mentions the singleness of heart. And the New American Standard says the sincerity of heart. I want to read to you the definition of that term from, strong, uh, from the Complete Word Study Dictionary. It says, without a stone, level, simple, without guile or duplicity. Simplicity, sincerity, purity of intention. In other words, what Luke said about these early Christians, all this stuff that they were doing, he said, what you see is what you get. There were no ulterior motives. They were not worshiping God with with other designs on their mind. They weren't gathering with the saints in order to make social contact with people to further their business. They weren't sinning all week long and then coming to church in order to hopefully just take care of that. What you saw was what you had. These were people who were sincere, who were coming together to simply worship and praise the God who had saved them. That's all there was to it. And they had singleness of heart. I really love that definition. Singleness of heart. They had only one motive. Their motives weren't divided. It wasn't partially about serving God and partially about something else. They had a singleness of heart that was just simply devoted to God, to worshiping and praising and honoring Him. What an amazing state of mind that they had. And when they came, as they were here, they were devoting their hearts to it. I have no doubt that... I mean, there are people just like us. I'm sure that some of them were worried about whether or not the roast was burning at home. But what was their goal? Single-minded devotion. We're worshiping God. We're praising Him. We're honoring Him. Why? Because He deserves it. And that's it. That's it. No ulterior motives. And finally, the Jerusalem Christians were devoted to worship because they didn't just keep it at church. It wasn't just about coming to the assembly. If you look there at the end of this text in verse 46 and 47, it says, Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple. And I believe that there refers to their assemblies. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. But notice this, praising God and having favor with all the people. From house to house, what were they doing? Yes, they were getting together and having secular and social time, but they were also getting together from house to house and they were praising God. Worship for them was not just on Sunday. Worship for them was not just on Wednesday night at their midweek assembly. Worship for them was not just when they gathered together because there was a gospel meeting going on. Worship was a way of life that expressed itself at times when they gathered together with other Christians in an assembly. But worship was just a way of life. Singing praises to God 
That was just something they did. Praying. That was just something they did because that's who they were. Because they were devoted to God. And therefore, it was natural to come together with the saints and worship with them as well. Sometimes we get a little backwards, I think. We come together and worship with the saints and sometimes struggle to deal with the worship at other times. But we've got to have times when we worship as families, individually, personally, with Christians outside of this assembly. Worshiping God just ought to be a part of who and what we are. And let me clarify that. When I say it's a part of what we are, I mean an integral, not just a, we need to have some time slots for that. It just needs to be what we are, worshipers. Honoring and praising God. That's what the Christians in Jerusalem were. And because of that, they were devoted to worship. Can we grow? Can we continue to be strengthened? Serving and glorifying God? Strengthening those who come in among us? We absolutely can. But it will only happen in one way. It will only happen as we, as individual Christians, grow. No matter what anybody else is doing. And I'll... Let me say this now before I get in trouble later. I realize that no matter what we do, there are going to be folks that fall through the cracks. I am not saying that there's anything we can do that will stop people from ever falling away. I know that. But we can stem the tide. And it will happen with each and every one of us growing. And one of the places we need to start is our devotion to worship. Are you devoted to worship? Or is it just something to check off the list? To get your kingdom stuff done first. Devotion to worship. The Jerusalem saints were certainly devoted to worship. And we need to be as well. I hope this lesson has helped you. Let's remember what we learned. If we're going to be devoted to worship, we must, one, fear God. Two, desire to serve our brethren. Three, be filled with gladness for what God has done for us. Four, have singleness and sincerity of heart. And five, we must not keep worship at church. God is worthy of our praise and adoration. I pray that we will always be devoted to Him. If someone has given you this lesson, I invite you to check out our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons on a variety of topics. Feel free to download any lesson in audio or manuscript format. If you have any questions about God, worship, or the Franklin Church of Christ, please contact us by calling 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website. Again, that's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you bless God.